there's these little communities that are perched right on top of those rivers made sense economically in the past when you needed a mill maybe but it you know and that's where you unloaded your food and all those kind of things uh, but today puts them at incredible risk and many of those communities have tremendous environmental justice questions welcome to growing impact a podcast by the institutes of energy and the environment at penn state growing impact explores cutting edge projects of researchers and scientists who are solving some of the world's most challenging energy and environmental issues each project has been funded through an innovative seed grant program that's facilitated through IEE. I'm your host, Kevin Sliman. On this episode of Growing Impact, I speak with Lillard Richardson, a professor of public policy and the department head of the School of Public Policy at Penn State. Richardson's research focuses on the policy analysis of health and safety policies. We discuss his seed grant project titled Flooding, Hurricane Harvey, and Environmental Justice, through which he and his team seek to better understand the social effects associated with flooding and development in flood zones, such as whether racial and ethnic minorities, children, and those with low income suffer the most. Welcome Lillard Richardson to Growing Impact. Thank you. Flooding from a hurricane is already a major challenge for a community, but you're looking even deeper. What are you investigating? Well, so there's there's really three levels that we worry about. One is the social vulnerability of, of individuals uh, who are, are oftentimes in difficult situations. And I'll, I can talk about what that means more if you're interested in that. Mm-hmm. Second is we're interested in kind of the vulnerability of a community uh, as a whole. And that vulnerability could be, for example, is your hospital in a floodplain? Is your school in a floodplain? And so unfortunately, sometimes these kinds of vulnerabilities double down between those two types of vulnerability. And then kind of third is the physical vulnerability of of properties and of of kind of the area. And the physical vulnerability is more like the work that hydrologists or others, uh, engineers and others around the the university might do. But we're mostly interested in the policy aspects, what affects the the communities, public finance, what makes a, whether a community has adopted certain kinds of policy to mitigate flooding. uh, And then again, how those individuals are affected. So it's really kind of those two areas that we're trying to understand. And the availability of data, big data, as people sometimes say, has been really incredible in what's available now. And so you can get information on almost every property in America. Uh, You can find out, you know, there's, there's incredible information about what part of your property might be along a floodplain, what parts not, you know, all those kinds of information. And so we really, it takes sort of the resources of a place like Penn State to be able to do some of this stuff because we've had to use the raw supercomputer and we're probably using more terabytes of data to do this than they did to put, you know, the man on the moon with the Apollo mission, you know, kind of thing. Uh, You know, it's like 15 terabytes, which, you know, it's hard to even imagine those kind of terabytes. But uh, but so this is, that's kind of what's, what's driving this is trying to really dig down into that data at the parcel level, the individual property level. And then kind of the the next step will be once we sort of identified that in this really detailed, rich way, uh, is to really start to understand then more about the people that are affected themselves by this, but understanding better like who, who really is most vulnerable, which properties have been sort of damaged repeatedly, which ones are sort of due for it, those kinds of things. And then again, how it sort of interacts with those community and policy level uh, kinds of issues. What's the inspiration behind the project? 
Well, um, it, it actually started probably five, six years ago that we actually started to really get interested in this, this topic. And uh, it was it was a conversation with a couple of colleagues over lunch. You know, these things can can happen. And that's one of the things we sort of lost with the lockdown, unfortunately, but uh, hopefully we'll get back soon. And. You know, I've done a lot of policy work that's both health and, and state level kinds of issues. A lot of my work's been around safety and those kinds of things. And as we kept talking about the issues, some of the same social vulnerabilities, the, the the kind of equity issues that you're finding in maybe the healthcare system and the kinds of social determinants of healthcare that we that we oftentimes do research on, those things seem to be sort of magnified by the folks who are vulnerable in these ways to flooding and other kinds of disasters. And, and uh, so I, I've partnered, partnered with a, a couple of folks who have looked at this in different ways, uh, but then really this data availability just you know, the last couple of years has really exploded and, and allowed us to think about some of these questions in a much more micro way, rather than just saying, you know, all the folks that live along this river are at, you know, at risk. Mm-hmm. Here's specifically the folks who are at like a eight out of 10 kind of risk. And here's the folks who are six out of 10. And here's the folks who are two out of 10 and, and uh, trying to understand that in a much more nuanced way. How are flooding and environmental justice connected? Yeah, so there's there's really two major risks of flood in America. They are people who are along the coast, particularly hurricane, you know, threats uh, along the Gulf Coast and the and the, the South Atlantic, uh, you know, Southern Atlantic states like South Carolina and North Carolina, and coastal flooding tends to be not entirely. We know from like Superstorm Sandy, some of it did hit some some lower income houses, but oftentimes coastal damage is much more to second homes, vacation homes, people that, you know, have invested and that are oftentimes upper middle class. Riverine flooding, which is, you know, along rivers like the Juniata and those kinds of things in the Susquehanna here locally, there's these little communities that are perched right on top of those rivers, made sense economically in the past when you needed a mill maybe, but it you know, and that's where you unloaded your food and all those kind of things. Uh, but today puts them at incredible risk. And many of those communities have tremendous environmental justice questions because it tends to be the poorest people living in many of those most vulnerable homes. A lot of the schools, public services are also very vulnerable. And so the town as a whole is vulnerable and those folks you know that are that are there so there's some tremendous uh, questions there about who ends up paying that price and and of course there's the broader environmental justice issues about you know rising sea levels and those kinds of things that are also sort of built into this question about flooding but a lot of that is is more on the coast like i said and and so we've actually separated our research into more coastal flooding issues and more inland coastal issues. And, I, and we are finding some differences in the impact that it has on things like housing values and density of housing and, and those kinds of issues. What is the concern about how flood zones and the communities within them are created? And is this something you'd label as systemic racism? So, you know, the uh, the systemic, there, there's well, two questions in there, maybe more. Uh, the systemic racism, many times in the past, there were red line districts within the, you know, that both banks and, and communities used to limit who could have access to loans. There's quite a bit of evidence that those red line areas tend to be more likely to be vulnerable 
to flooding in addition to vulnerable and the more traditional social vulnerabilities we would talk about for for folks that are, are you know lower income and, and and struggling in various ways and so the, uh, the the question between the redlining and and kind of the the long-term structural issues of how communities were built that's pretty straightforward and there's there's a fair amount of evidence on that there's less about kind of the the individual level of houses and parcels and the individual level of uh, community structures that are at risk. And so say, for example, uh, you know, you might be a, a coastal person might still have their high school on very safe ground, but if somebody who's in this one of these riverine communities and because of systemic racism in the past that the school was built in also a low lying area that's also at risk, they're again kind of multiplication facts here, you know, that, that are that are happening for some of these communities. So the individuals and then the school at the same time. So so that's that's kind of that historical kind of structural issue that's that's there. Then in terms of the flood maps themselves, uh, you know, basically the NFIP came about in the 60s, early 70s. Most of these were really developed. Um, not all communities still have been mapped. Not all rivers are mapped. Uh, you you think they would be in today's uh, society, uh, but um, many of them have not. And there is a political factor. Now, we have not got into this part of it yet. This is kind of a longer term question for us, but is sort of this political factor of you know, whether you put a house in to the floodplain or not affects their ability to buy insurance and whether a community participates in these certain policies. It's a, a thing called the CRS, the community rating system. If the community participates in that, it can actually lower the insurance rates, the flood insurance rates for the houses in that community. But which communities tend to have the resources to participate in the CRS to do the kind of things that mitigate the risk? It's oftentimes the wealthier communities. And so so that's part of this, too, is is how does you know, how do these policies like the CRS and, and various other kinds of development policies that cities and communities can use? How do they shape the risk? that's available to folks. And part of this is an administrative capacity, which which communities have the kind of staff, the kind of resources to get this done. Some of it's political will, uh, you know, so these different things can come together, but certainly that administrative capacity could shape whether or not you're, you're focusing on stormwater drains, for example, and focusing on whether you do what you need to to protect your school or your city hall or, or some of these other public infrastructure types of, of facilities. So, so it all kind of gets tied together in these ways between kind of the environmental justice issues and and who's most vulnerable and um and that's that's what we're kind of trying to to break apart um there are some other issues kind of down the line that have motivated some of this that are uh, a couple of our other colleagues that are that are on this um are more interested in the health and education outcomes uh, for children you know so if this affects a school not only does the kid get displaced by the flood, but then maybe the school is closed down for six months. What type of learning outcomes does this have on a long-term basis for the, for those children? And so there's there's a, a lot of work on on um, kind of the you know how any displacement affects children's development, and that's a that's an issue that a couple of my colleagues on the project are particularly uh, in tuned with. Part of this is to look to build a, a new database, if I understand it correctly. Yeah. So why is it important to create this database uh, with this new information? Yeah, so a lot of the, the past um, information on this stuff was, was really at the, the broad level, like zip code level. And 
you know, when we think about a community, I mean, a zip code can be pretty broad. I mean, it can be, you know, State College only has two or three of these that are, you know, cover most of that population. And so it certainly doesn't help you understand the particular community that might be along a river or that's along a particular creek that repeatedly floods or that it's at the bottom of a mountain that maybe repeatedly floods. And so, you know, maybe in some rural areas, a zip code might give you a pretty good sense of, of who's at risk, uh, or I should say in certain urban areas, it may give you a pretty good sense of risk, but a rural zip code can be very large too. And so part of what we're trying to understand is these little bitty towns, you know, like Williamsburg that's down south of here, that's, you know, kind of near Huntington and Altoona, a uh, little town out by itself, what type of risk does that type of town have? And, and so this database is allowing us to not just be at the, the zip code level or at the kind of massive flood level, but we can actually say this house at this latitude and longitude is that, you know, like say on a scale from one to 10 to make it simple, you know, there are four or there are six or whatever it is. And then we can also though, based on now, because there's so much data out there, based on the county assessor data, we know that that's a 1200 foot square, 1200 square foot home or a 2400 square foot home, or if it was assessed at a million dollars or whether it was assessed at $200,000. And those are all public records, but getting them all in one place is obviously, uh, you know, intensive, both in terms of human time and in terms of computing uh, resources to try to do that. And then when you start overlaying things like, you know, elevation, the, the flow of the water, which way the water is going, and then the maps that the uh, that FEMA puts out, those are constantly being updated. And there are some communities, so kind of going back to whether, you know, kind of the equity issues on this, there are many communities, counties that don't have the resources to do this. And it tends to be coastal counties get the attention, big, you know, big population counties tend to get this kind of stuff. And a lot of rural communities don't get the kind of redefinition of, of these floodplains that these other areas do. And so that also can create some issues because, you know, the floodplains that were built in the 60s aren't necessarily that accurate. Plus, they were doing broad, you know, it was like they would just draw a circle and say, like, everything within this circle must be it. Well, there might be a big hill in the middle of that circle and that that wouldn't be at risk, uh, but there also could be some little, you know, little cutoffs off of that that aren't being covered in the right way. And so some of the more wealthy communities have have gotten down to where there's somebody sitting there looking at a map and looking at elevation and knows this house should be in the floodplain, but the house next door shouldn't be. And so they're starting to get more and more refined, but that's the kind of data we need. And, and you know, are you behind a levee or are you behind maybe, uh, you know, some kind of berm that's been created? Or, you know, is there nothing between your backyard and <laughs> and the and the creek or river, that kind of thing? So it's it's just layering on lots and lots of data into one place. But uh, and the final thing I would add is that data like municipal finance, public infrastructure types of stuff, the school district data, those kinds of things, um, they're oftentimes in completely different kinds of data sets that aren't attached to this kind of individual level data. And so consequently pulling those together and trying to match up like the municipal county lines with which houses are in a floodplain, is just a very time intensive type of, of uh, process. So uh, that's where the data is there, but getting it all into a place that can answer the questions that we have about who's at risk, both at a, at a community level, but also an individual level is so important. When you get this information all in one place and have this database, 
What are some concrete ways to address those findings? Yeah, so one of the things, actually, I just got off the phone uh, uh, with one of our colleagues over at the Sustainability Institute, and uh, we were talking about uh, how we, as, as a next step, can partner with uh, some either regional watershed type of associations or communities to start to understand how they could kind of make use of some of this data, what would be not just academic, but what would be, you know, uh, accessible to somebody who, you know, maybe doesn't have a PhD and and, and understanding how to do spatial econometrics. And uh, we certainly have academic questions and we've got things in academic journals, but, but how do we make it in, a, in some kind of toolbox that's available for uh, communities to make some use uh, of it? And, you know, we, we're not necessarily the ones that are going to fix these inequities, but the first step is oftentimes just finding out where are the inequities, where are the, the vulnerabilities, and then hopefully getting that information into the right hands so that then the folks that are policymakers who are, are you know, deciding zoning laws and, and things like that uh, can use that information, hopefully in a, in a good way to sort of uh, address and ameliorate some of those, those uh, inequities that, that, that are out there. Are there any next steps or future plans besides already what you mentioned that uh, maybe uh, you would talk about for this project? Yeah, so, you know, at this stage, I mean, like I said, this is really data intensive. And so at this stage, we've done something like 10 states and we just started really working on Pennsylvania. But uh, we kind of, like I said, started with the Gulf and and kind of southern Atlantic states. And uh, but it it is pretty time intensive. And so it takes, you know, it just takes a while to to add on each state. And I think the thing that, you know, I I think anybody in Pennsylvania would know that Pennsylvania has a tremendous number of floods and it's had tremendous level of of damage over the years. Uh, But people might not think about North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, places like that that also have pretty considerable risk uh, themselves. And, you know, some of the the worst damage uh, inland uh, was a couple of years ago in Iowa, like you know, downtown Des Moines was like heavily damaged by by flooding and people just don't think about that uh, out there in those those parts of the country. And so certainly as we build up the database to start to cover some of those other parts of the country, that's one of the goals is to be able to cover more uh, areas. And then I think, like I said, some of my colleagues uh, are really more interested in in now that we have this kind of information, trying to understand a bit more at the individual level, the human level through perhaps qualitative methods or ethnographies or those kinds of things, how do we start to understand how people sort of process this information? How do they process risk? Do they, you know, um, for example, a little thing like Texas now has a disclosure law for renters on whether they're in a floodplain. Uh, some states don't even require disclosure when you buy a house. So how does that disclosure shape your thinking about when you buy or rent uh, property? And so we we don't know a lot about that. I mean, there are some studies out there. There are other folks working on this area. Obviously, it's a huge area. But uh, those are the kind of things that we want to try to eventually get to is, is kind of that broader understanding of how this impacts the, the community. So uh, hopefully that's a, a future step. But uh, there's, there's plenty of data to work between here and there. So we, we've got ourselves, uh, you know, quite a research agenda for a while. Thank you for spending time with us on Growing Impact Weather. Yeah, it was great to meet you and talk to you today. And uh, if anybody's interested in flood research, wants to reach out to me and the team, it'd be great to, uh, to work with them. You've been listening to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. I've been your host, Kevin Sliman. This has been season two, episode nine. Thank you for listening. 